I want to start out by saying, first of all, that uh, as I labored about how to deliver this message this morning, um, there were a lot of things in my heart and my mind which I thought I should say. I won't be able to say it all, whether you think that or not. (laughs) By the end, you may think he said it all. But I just want to start off by saying that uh, I, I bring this sermon to you as one who is uh, humbly seeking to live a better um, representation of the message of the gospel. I, I think sometimes um, it's easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking, not just me, but I think I'm guilty of a lot of times that I've got it figured out. You know, and I understand it, and I got the gospel, and it's been applied to my heart, and I live by it, and I breathe it, and eat it, and sleep it, and talk about it. And, and, and in reality, when I just get some perspective and step back, what I see is that most of what I do is a shell of what I wish it would be. You ever felt like that? You know, you, you labor at something for a long time, and you think, man, I'm really doing a good thing, and then... You know, circumstances happen, you back away and you say, boy, this is, just, this is just really mundane. What I'm doing, what I'm trying to accomplish, it isn't seeming to move forward very well. Um, and and in, a, in a moment, you feel like a failure. But then what I want us to walk away with is not that feeling. What I want us to walk away with is the assurance that it is by that mundane, often failing life that the power of God is made perfect to the people of the world. That they look at weak, worn-out, earthly vessels and say, not, boy, look how wonderful they are, but they literally look at us and say, their God must be great. That's That's what God told Paul. By your weakness, what? I am made strong. I am shown to be the strength, not you. And so often I lose that perspective. Just in, in all honesty, you know, last weekend we went to, uh, we went to two every tribe down in Los Fresnos, Texas. And, and in, in by um, Saturday morning, mid-morning, my heart was just overflowing. And, and what I was wanting was I wish I could have transported the whole of you there with me to experience and see these things firsthand. Because what you're doing is impacting the whole world. And you don't get to see it firsthand. You just hear about it and hear reports of it. And what I wanted was if we could just scoop everybody up and transport them here to see these missionaries. To touch the, the, the robe of God's glory in the work that he's doing all through the tribes of the world. And Grace Fellowship is part of that. If we could see that, catch a vision of it, then our, our mundane lives would, would be, we could see what God's doing better, if that makes sense. Because often we're, we can't see the forest for the trees. We're too intimate with it. And so it took, I don't know, maybe not even till now it's not, not there. But what I've had to do all week is work through how do I communicate what I think God's placed on me and I think has placed on Grace Fellowship, for Grace Fellowship without sounding like what I'm saying is we're failing. Because I don't, I'm saying it up front because I know when I get a little bit into this sermon, you're going to think, well, we're failures. And that's not what I'm saying. Okay, I'm telling you up front. That's the temptation for you, for me, when we hear this kind of sermon is, man, I'm just living life in Cameron County. What am I doing? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, We, as the people of God, are weak and worn out vessels that, yes, what we do is very mundane, it seems like, and very common, but what God does is uncommon. He takes those common things that we're doing every day and displays himself in such a way that he draws men in to the kingdom of God through it, okay? And so I'm saying that up front so that halfway through this sermon, your eyes aren't, you know, glazed over and you're thinking, he's... He's way down the path, okay? And if I get too far out there, just understand, maybe I need a little more work on it, okay? I'm just up front being very, very honest with you. This is not the easiest sermon to preach because 
what, what I, what I, the burden of my heart is that we come along in the vision, not get run over by it and not get discouraged by it. So, all that said, there's been one consuming, driving force from Genesis to Revelation to today that has driven the people of God when the people of God have best displayed the glory of God through right biblical theology, what has happened is God has been displayed as worthy of praise. And the nations have taken notice and people have come. And so wherever we've seen great revivals break forth, what people got right first was an understanding of who God is. They began to see God is all glorious. And then they began to see, I am all sinful. And they led them then to repent of themselves and of their culture and of their church life and of their religion and of their attempts to reach God. And then from there, God began to expel people from their, to their workplaces and to their homes and to their neighboring nations and to the ends of the earth with the vision of God's glory before them. And the desire to see God glorified in every home, in every job, in every activity, in every hobby, in every lifestyle choice, in everything to see God glorified. When that's happened in the history of the church, revival has broke forth. The Spirit of God has gone to work and people have come in by the hundreds, by the hundreds and even by the thousands. And so it's not a first look at, man, there's a lot of people out in the world who need to get saved. When things have tried to start that way, they die. Because the task is overwhelming. And you start to be met with frustration. And people aren't getting saved fast enough. And so what you settle on is, well, I'm just must not, must not be very good at, at proclaiming the gospel, so I'm just going to do what I do. And you become quiet and don't. But when the glory of God is the compelling vision, then no matter who gets saved or doesn't get saved, the fact that you're living and breathing and teaching and walking by sight of faith to see the glory of God in this place, that continues to compel and drive people into the mission there's one great missionary. Amy Carmichael left the shores of Ireland to go to Asia, and she ended up spending her entire life in, in, in India. Fifty years of, of serving the people of India. Near the end of her life, what she said, this is a rough quote of what she said in her journal was, life has been hard from the moment I decided to leave Ireland. It's been difficult. There's been, I've been met with trouble from everywhere. But I've always found that He is enough. The compelling vision of Amy Carmichael's life was the glory of God contained in the person of Jesus Christ. And He is enough. John Calvin spent most of his life where he did not want to be. Did you know that? He resisted to the point of sin to not be in Geneva. He did not want to live and minister and work in Geneva. That's not what he wanted. He did not want to be a pastor. I know, you think less of him now, right? He wanted to be a writer, a theologian. He wanted to be free from the cares of a pastorate so he could write about God. But God kept him in Geneva being a pastor. In his writings, what you find when you read the Institutes, front to back, when you read his sermons, when you read his commentaries, there's one driving theme in all of his writings. It's not the five points of Calvinism. He didn't write those. There's one driving, consuming vision. The glory of God.
Martin Luther, the great reformer in Germany, he was very different from so many in the day that were what we call magisterial reformers. He was a rough, around-the-edges kind of guy. But when you read and when you study and when you think about the principles that drove him to break from the Catholic Church eventually, unfortunately, to the pain of his own heart and to begin the Protestant Church, what drove him was a singular vision that the glory of God was being consumed by the outward workings of man in the Catholic Church and God's gospel wasn't going forth in power and that's what he wanted was the glory of God to be present in the people's lives. John Knox in Scotland, Jonathan Edwards in the United States, C.H. Spurgeon in England, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, John MacArthur in our day. All of these men consumed with one, when you boil it all down, you get down to it, one thing. God's glory shall be displayed among the people of the earth. Where would they get this? Like did some, but these men from completely different generations, stretching out from the New Testament all the way to our day. How, where does that come from? The book. The Bible. That's where it comes from. And today we have the opportunity to look at a parable that Jesus taught the people in his day that tells this very story of the glory of God going from where they were to the ends of the earth. Let's look at this parable together. First of all, we see that God is on a mission. In the parable, in the context where he's at, he's in a Pharisee's home, Jesus is, and he's already <clears throat> healed a man on the Sabbath. And, and, and as you know, that always causes him trouble when he does anything on the Sabbath. The Pharisees get angry. He then goes to a Pharisee's house. He, he, he's in the Pharisee's house. You put that on top. He's healing this person. I mean, you understand. He's healing this person. And then he's in a Pharisee's house. And they're asking him questions about this. About violating the Sabbath. That's the context we're in. He's in a Pharisee's house. Jesus, when we find him, eats with three groups of people. This is interesting. He eats with his disciples. Which we would expect. Maybe we see him sharing meals with the men that he loves the most. He eats with the rank sinners of his day. Prostitutes, drunkards, tax collectors. He sits in their home and he eats with them. And he eats with the Pharisees. Not likely companions, right? But Jesus was in all of those groups. And if you look at the Gospels, he's there. He eats a lot. You remember he said, John came neither eating or drinking. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking and called him a drunk and a glutton. He ate a lot. Mealtime was central to their lives. In their culture, entertaining people at your home, was hospitality was central in your life. And so Jesus is at this Pharisee's home. He's an invited guest. And now they're taking jabs, religious jabs at him about his work on the Sabbath. Then he goes into a parable about the wedding feast. Okay, And that's the first thing. He told them a parable. We know that parables are earthly stories with spiritual, heavenly, important meanings. Or a meaning. And then he encourages them after he tells them that story that when they have banquets... Banquets are just great meals, children. It's not like some event at the Civic Center. This is just what they call their festive meals. When they show hospitality and invite people in, it was a big production for them. They sent out invitations in advance. They sent back RSVPs, right? They said, we're coming. And they prepared for a long period of time with lots of effort and money for these meals. And then the people would come and they would eat and they would celebrate. And they would, that, was, that was a regular part. So that's where he is. He's an invited guest at this Pharisee's house. This Pharisee has spent lots of money, time, energy, and preparation for what's going on. And Jesus then looks around the room. 
in verse 12 and says to them, hey, when you have a parable, I mean, when you have a parable, when you have a banquet, when you have a banquet at your home, don't invite your friends. Because when you invite your friends, they're going to invite you. Rather, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame. Invite them in, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, I only say that. But I'm not going to preach from that. I'm setting the context. I want you to see Jesus drives the conversation to the, to the great banquet parable. He drives it there. He brings it up for them. Look what happens in verse 15. When he says this, what happens? One of the Pharisees reclined with him at table, says to him, he pronounces a blessing, which is another Jewish tradition. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now you would expect if anything would be welcomed by Jesus with an amen, it would be that, right? He's walked them to the point where they would make this pronouncement. He brought up the resurrection of the dead. Jesus brought it up. This isn't an accident. This is providential. So he can tell them about this great banquet that they're so looking forward to. God is on a mission. Look what he does here. He tells this story. I want to explode the view that Jesus is some meek, mild, you know, wimpy person. Think of the, the audacity to tell this in their presence. What he says is there was a master of the house. We understand that to be God. The house is his, his covenant abode. The eternal state. And he sent out invitations. These invitations went to the Jews. The Pharisees. The Old Testament tells us that God invited Israel to the banquet. What's their response in our story? We're not coming. God is on a mission. Secondly, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back and fill these in, but I'll just give you the outline. God is on a mission. Secondly, there is a servant in the house which is compelling. Who is compelling. And third and finally. This compelling servant. Is calling us. To join him. In inviting people to the banquet. This parable gives us all of that. What do I mean by God is on a mission? Notice. A man once gave a great banquet in verse 16 and invited many. This, this master has a plan and his plan is to invite many into his house. This isn't just a meal. This is a banquet. This is a great feast. This is, uh, this is in, in a sense, this is an a, a instrumental moment in the lives of these who are being invited. This is not just some haphazard, well, maybe we'll have some friends over for a meal. He's planned. He's prepared. The master of this house is on a mission. He's made advanced planning. Okay? Now, how does that relate to God? Well, if we go back into Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, we see that at the very beginning, there's a missionary. Did you know that God is the great missionary in the garden he comes to Adam and Eve who's looking for who God is looking for them they're not looking for God the definition of a missionary is one who takes a message to a people that's a simple way to look at it a, a, a person who goes into another context and, or into their context, and gives a message. Who was the first missionary? God. God went after his people. God is the great missionary. The master of the house has made great preparations, and now he's calling people to the feast. 
This is not some coincidental idea that he thought of or dreamed up at the last minute when things kind of got off track and now he wants to have people come back. No, God planned this before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is not some haphazard plan that God came up with. This happened before he ever spoke into existence one molecule of physical existence. God is the great missionary. He's the one after his people. We often miss this in the parables. We, we, this is not unique to this parable. This is, this is through all the parables. And what we have done is we've taken them and we've snatched them off the page in our uh, revivalistic, evangelistic culture. And what we've said is we are the ones that are compelling people to come in. And we, and we make it about, Dave and I were talking about it earlier this week, we, we take this parable and we disregard the context and we don't look at the fact that God's the owner of the house and we say things like, all right, youth, we're having a revival next week. Now, we're going to have pizza night and it's your job to fill a pew up, so go get them. And we'll read, the, I've, I've seen it, the train wreck happen. And the point of the parable is evangelism. You go get them. You convince them. You twist their arm to come. It really turns the parable on the head. We do it not just with this one. I just want to warn you, we do it with a lot. Luke 15, the parables that come right after this, the lost sheep. Who do we say is going after the lost sheep? Common vernacular in our churches, we go after the lost sheep. When, when the sheep strays, we go get them and bring them back. Who goes and finds the lost coin? We do. Who goes and gets the lost son? We do. That's not what Jesus is teaching at all. That's obliterating those parables. What Jesus is saying is, I go get them. The lost sheep are found by God, by Jesus. The lost coin, Jesus. The lost son and the older brother are confronted with the character of God. Not with our character. So first of all, God is the missionary. And it began in the garden when he began to go after Adam and Eve. It was planned before the foundation of the earth, not after sin happened. It was planned and intended before he created one molecule of physical existence. When he was just a triune God in his ever uh, growing, ever-expanding love for himself, he then decided to gain for himself a people to share in this relationship. God is the great missionary of the Bible. It's not just in that, just so you know. It's, it's farther than that. The very next story in the Bible is what? And I'm not going to go from Genesis to Malachi, I know. But I just want to show you some examples. Who goes after Cain? Does Abel go after Cain? Does Cain come after God? Oh, God goes to Cain. Sin wants to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Who goes after Abraham? Abraham was looking for God? No. Abraham was under the oak trees worshiping an unknown, an idolater. He was, he was, the Chaldeans were known for their worship of pagan rituals. God came to Abraham and said, I've chosen you. I've called you. We could go on and on. David? Yeah, David was looking to be the king of Israel, right? No, David was tending sheep. God said, my king lives over there in that house. Go get him, Samuel. Who was the great missionary? God was the great missionary. God is the one going after his people. No one comes, no one seeks after God. No one comes after God. God goes after them. So the first thing we see in the parable is God is on a mission, and his mission is to gather his people into his household around his great banquet table. Now he says here in verse 17 in this parable, he turns to the servant, and the servant is told to go out. And tell the people that he has invited that everything is now ready for the great banquet. What we see is there's a great servant in the house. There's a great master of the house and there's a great servant of the house. That great servant is Jesus Christ. Jesus goes out from his father, sent by his father 
on a mission. John 1 tells us what his mission was. He came that he might put on flesh and dwell among us and that we might see in him the glory of God. That was his mission, to display the glory of God. To be the compelling invitation. God didn't simply say words. He incarnated the Word in the person of Jesus Christ and sent Him to gather the people. What was their response? John tells us their response. He came unto His own. And what? His own received Him not. Same thing he says in this parable. Notice that everybody there has a good reason, don't they? Everybody has a good reason why they can't go to the feast. First of all, I bought some land. In their culture, in their time, it was required after you purchase land. It's kind of backwards the way we think, so I'm explaining this. After you paid for the land, you then went immediately and walked the borders of it, checked everything out to make sure it was the way it was supposed to be. You gave an inspection to the land. The first man has a great excuse. He bought land, and I've got to go out and do my due diligence. Tell him I'll have to be excused. The second man has a great, a great uh, excuse. I just have teamed up these oxen. I've got to work the ox in the field. I, he's, he's a farmer. He's, a, he, he's at hard at work. He has a good excuse. He has a lot invested in this. Commentators say it was common that they had one or two teams of oxen. The fact this man owned five speaks to his wealth and his abundance. So he's a good, he's a good farmer and he's got a job to do and he's about his job. The last one, certainly you women would agree, has a good excuse, right? I mean, he just got married. Who wants to leave their wife? She might not have been invited. Who wants to leave her at home? Or who wants to go out when you can eat in, right? And just spend time together. He has a great excuse. As a matter of fact, the law of God had given the men of Israel the right to take a year away from battle or war. To spend just with their homestead and and with their wife to establish firm rooting. He probably had a great excuse. But excuses they are nonetheless. And when the great missionary master of the house calls his people to come, their response is, thanks but no thanks. Because he came to his own and his own did not receive him. In the parable, the people that first are invited are the Jews. They were invited from the time of Abraham until Jesus' own day. And they resisted. They should have been prepared. They should have been ready. But they were not ready. The master doesn't respond by being bitter and withdrawing his offer. He expands the offer. Look at that. Now this is where you get excited and I get excited. He goes, says, go and get the lame and the blind, the poor, and bring them to my table. Don't get offended by this, but in the Bible, the Jews used all of those. All these Pharisees would have heard that. They would have immediately thought of the Gentiles. That was the way they talked about the Gentiles. They're ignorant, blind, poor, pagan people. They're outsiders. What's being revealed to us in this is that the kingdom of God being offered to Israel is rejected by the majority of Israel. They will not come. And God doesn't then take his ball and go home. He carries out the further plan, which is to bring his people from the ends of the earth to the feast. He brings the first wave. The servant is successful. Notice that they don't resist. Just like Paul says in Acts 28, they don't resist. They come. And sit down to eat. And he says, they came, Lord, and there's still room. And he says what? Go then to the highways and the byways and bring in everyone that my house might be filled. God is not just any average missionary. God is a missionary that expects great result. He will have great results. His house will be filled. Not with the likely characters, but with the unlikely. Now that's carried out by the apostles. They obviously understood this. This is not the only time Jesus teaches this. They get it. Why do we know that? Because all of them in Acts respond that way. 
they're given the commission to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is that being played out. That's, that's what the book of Acts is. The work of God taking, the, the, the Spirit of God taking the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. We see in Acts chapter 2, the beginning. When the gospel went to the Jewish people in Jerusalem and around that area for the Feast of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved and added to the church that day. And then from there we see in Acts chapter 7 that Philip goes to Samaria. It's Philip who carries into Samaria the message of the gospel and the people in Samaria begin to respond and be saved and the Spirit falls on them as it did the people at Pentecost and the gospel goes to that next layer. And from there we see that it went to the ends of the earth in Acts 10. And then all of Paul's ministry. Peter in Acts 10 takes the gospel to Cornelius and the gospel, the gospel is preached of the kingdom of God. The people believe and the Spirit falls on them. And then all of Paul's ministry is Gentile ministry. All the way to Acts 28. But I would say, and I don't think it's too far to say, that we're still in the phase of the highways and hedges and compelling people to come in. We're still there. God's still filling His house. He's not finished. Acts 28, in other words, is not the end of the story. Did you notice how quick that broke off? Did you, when Carlton read it, did you not feel like, I, I want the next chapter. Where's it at? Did you feel that? When you read Revelation, and this is the way I feel, when I get to Revelation 22, I don't feel like I came to the end of a story. I came to a beginning. It's, it's never ending. It just, it just it goes off. And I'm like, it's, it's the ultimate, Acts 28 is the ultimate cliffhanger. You know, now don't act like y'all don't watch sitcoms. You get to the end of the season, the last show is always a cliffhanger, right? Because they want you to tune back in. God did the same thing in Acts. He's the, the message is spreading. It's gone to Rome. And don't you want to know what happens? And we're left like, come on. But I would contend to you that we live in Acts 29. We are the people of the message that are still taking that message to the ends of the earth. The reason it doesn't end right there is because there is no end. It keeps going. You and I have now been beckoned by Jesus to join in the compelling of the nations and the peoples to come into the house and eat at the banquet table. That's what we're doing right now. Now, how does Jesus do this? Jesus is very clear, I believe, in John 14 through 16 to tell us how it is He is compelling people to come into the house. How is He fulfilling the job of the great servant? He has left and He has given us the Spirit. And with the Spirit, mighty works will be done through the people of God. In other words, the body of Christ on the earth today is the church. We are the body. We are Jesus' body on the earth. The head is Christ. There is only one head. And He is the compelling reason to come. And He is the one who is compelling others to, to come. And He is the one who is sending us to get them. He didn't save you so that you could just glory in your salvation. He saved you so you could take the message of salvation to those near and far. That's my point. That's why He sent the Spirit. If it's not that, I'm going to just ask this question. Why would He not then just zap us to heaven? If we're not part of the body that's out there as the great servant Jesus is compelling people to come in, and we are that, if we're not that, everything else we need to do is better there than here. Worship is better there. Sin is not present there. All the sanctification, you talk about sanctification, is glorification. It would be, if all that was in view when he saved you was your salvation, if that's all God was worried about was individual Dave and Lisa and, and Amy and Jason Gilbert coming into the kingdom, and he would save them, then he would zap them to heaven. He would just take them immediately. Because then they would be worshiping in spirit and truth before his throne. That's the ultimate. We know that's the ultimate. But as John Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. 
There's parts in the world where worship doesn't exist. There's businesses in this community where worship isn't happening. There's homes in our neighborhoods where people are not yet knowing Christ and worshiping Him there. So we're here as His representative, as His body. Not not singularly, but as a group we are here. Grace Fellowship exists to take the message of the gospel to our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. If that's not why we're here, then why are we still here? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, that's what I spent yesterday. I mean, my wife and kids, they kept asking me, like, what are you thinking about? That's what I was thinking about is, that's why I'm here. To worship God in such a way in every aspect and part of my life so that the glory of God expands where I am and brings and compels others in. Now, I want to apply this. I feel like you should know now at least what, what I believe this parable is teaching. There's a great missionary. His name is God. He has a great servant. His name is Jesus. He is compelling not just Jews, but Gentiles, all of his people from all of the earth to come to the great banquet. And his house will be filled. The mission will get accomplished. Revelation 19 does happen. It's not maybes. It is going to happen. Now, we are the ones as the body of Christ out in the highways and the byways and the hedges, bringing them to the table. You get that? All right, now how is Grace Fellowship doing that? As we close this sermon, I want to I encourage you, hopefully, because it, what I've just spent a lot of time, and I know a lot of words explaining, at great pains I've tried to make it plain for this reason. I want to bring you to the part where you say, I'm not doing that. Because that's where I've had to come. I'm doing it at times and I'm not doing it at times. Would you agree with that, Dave? There's days where I, I do sense and feel that, 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 that my consuming passion is the glory of God. And then there's a lot of days where it's just not. Other things, I'm the guy in the parable that has a field or has a wife or has, and I'm distracted. And I think you may be right there with me. And so I want to build you up because here's where I think we, we often go is, well, God's on a mission and he has missionaries and they're people like the people at Two Every Tribe and they go to the ends of the earth. And if I'd have preached the sermon Monday, it would have sounded a lot like that. The elders got that one. You got spared. But as I've gone through the week and it's taken all week to get to the point where I'm thinking, it's not just that some of you, and I do believe some of you will go to the tribes that are unreached. I, I, I believe that. In all my heart, I believe that. But the majority won't. And so are you second class? Are you just like, well, I, we're not on the A team. We're kind of way back here in the D or E section. We're just, we're, we're, you know, we're just mundane, just kind of living our existence. No. Absolutely not. Here's the way I think Grace Fellowship fulfills, partly fulfills. The glory of God is the foundation stone of, of our church. Aaron has helped us probably as much as anybody. The, the statement, I, don't, I didn't even look. Is it on the front of our, it's often on the front of our bulletins where I said, yes. That statement right there, Aaron crafted that, and all the men said, we like that. We seek to glorify God as a part of his church universal. His glory is the ultimate motive behind everything we believe, teach, practice, present. We seek to glorify him by loving him and growing to know him greater in his true essence and nature as revealed by his word, the scriptures. We also seek to glorify him by loving others, being used of him to bring them to know him in growing relationships and to minister to them in his name. I know that's not a cute little bullet market driven statement, but that's really it. The reason it's not one of those cute little statements is those cute little statements don't say it. They don't say enough. What, what we're about here is the glory of God. That's why Grace Fellowship exists. Quite frankly, there's plenty of places of worship in this county. There wasn't a need for any more churches, in a sense, but there was a need for a group of people to, to come together around the glory of God being held tightly to here and seen in reality and sent out the message of the glory of God sent out from that place. And that's why Grace Fellowship exists. So how are we doing that? So I want to start with our Jerusalem. The way that's happening is common people, regular Joes like me and like you, are working in regular jobs. 
Some of us are teachers. Some of us are, are working on, on assembly lines. Some of us are helping the assembly line folks get what they get. Some of us are in sales. Some of us are in the automobile industry. And some of us are in electrical contracting. And some of us are working for the government in various roles and places all over this. And some of us are, are driving trucks. And some of the, there's, there's all these common Joe jobs going on, right? Doctors. Sorry, Dr. Johansson, I won't forget you. Doctors, right? Training doctors. Business owners. And what I'm saying is, if we get the parable, what God's done is designed it so that we, by our very living in that place, have the opportunity to compel our co-workers into the kingdom of God. To work in such a way toward the glory of God that they see our lives and they hear our words and they sense our care and concern in the workplace so that they begin to see the glory of God and desire to come to the banquet and eat. I want what that guy's got, that lady's got. Some of us are staying at home with our children and you have the thankless job behind the scenes. No one sees you. You, you get frustrated with that and yet you're, you're on the front lines, not the rear line. You're in the front line of every day living a life that brings glory to his name and expands the reach of the gospel from your home. In our marriages. Why does Grace Fellowship care about marriages? Because it's through marriages that God expands the vision for his glory in this world. When our marriages are broken, the message is hindered from going forth from our homes. Men, you're not loving your wife so she will love you. You're loving your wife that you might display the glory of God to the other men in your life and in your neighborhood so that they see your marriage and give glory to your Father in heaven. Women, you're not submitting and loving your husband so that he will love you and dote on you. You're doing that so your children and so your friends will see the way you respect and honor and love and uphold your husband so they will give glory to your Father in heaven. We're all on the mission with God, every one of us. Students, you're not trying to get on the A honor roll. That's not your objective. But when you're in the classroom, your objective is to work in such a way that you're, that you're displaying by your words, actions, thoughts, and your performance the glory of God. That your co-students might look at you and say, there's something different about that person. That's not a sideline job. What you're doing is the front line. Grace Fellowship is on the front lines. We're not at ease. And the guys that are in these nations are at, at war. We're at war. And the war is not for the peoples. The war is for the glory of God. That's what we want to see. And if that is our aim in, our, in everything we're doing, then he will bring in many to his great banquet and they will eat at the table with him. Now, it goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. What I'm saying is once we're there, here, once we're really living the glory of God out here, people will be called to go and disperse from this place and go into the harvest field. And in some ways, we're not really ready for that unless we're already living and displaying it here. As I was sitting with David sitting this past weekend and talking with him, I couldn't help but, you know, I told Amy, it's like meeting a, uh, you know, meeting a modern-day uh, Apostle Paul. He's not inspired, I'm not saying that, but the same kind of process. Literally, in a matter of, of, a, of a 30 minute, the first 30 minutes of our conversation, he had charted out an entire plan for reaching the Hispanic pastors from Brownsville, Texas to El Paso. He said, it's a 15-hour drive, brother, and we can reach them and teach them and train them. We can do it. And I'm like, dude, did, y'all been thinking about that a long time? No, I just thought of it. Like, while we're sitting here, that's the kind of visionary he is he'd want to go. And yet, what I'm telling you is, he is no more strategic in God's eyes than you are.
His mission is no different than your mission. His calling is no greater than your calling. My calling. This parable assures us that God is on a mission that his servant has carried out that mission, and that now he has transitioned to the highways and byways, the responsibility of his body corporate around the earth, bringing in the vision of the glory of God and the, and the reaching of the elect from the, end, the four corners of the earth. And so I expect that in the year to come, we will find new and improved, hopefully, the, the idea I think we've had the parts. I told the guys Monday, I don't see that today is like some great change in what we've been doing. But I do think it's a reminder of why we're doing what we're doing. Because I think it's easy at 10, over 10 years old to kind of lose that and to start thinking, well, it's about marriages. Or it's about adoption. Or it's about missions to the ends of the earth. No, it's about the glory of God. And all of those things are a part of God gaining glory from all of his people in all of the world. So why do we do the things we do? That's why. That's the motive. And the method, it won't take me just a split second to tell you this, the method is discipleship. You say, well, we, if you're going to do this, we, can need, to, we need a program. We, we, need to, we need to get a program together for evangelism. No. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. No, because that's what we've done, Right? We've programmed it and everybody shows up on Tuesday night and they get their cards and they go to their houses and they knock on the door and they go through a plan and somebody prays and they get them baptized and they hand them a Bible and that's the end of the story. But what we want to do this year is do a better job of fostering a, a community of evangelism. That looks a lot like what I was describing about work and home and marriages and raising children so that we're coming alongside the people of this world, rubbing shoulders with them in authentic ways that they might know they have a need, and that need is Christ. Not a program, not a church, but Christ. So a culture of evangelism, or a community of evangelism, not a program of it. So that's the method, discipleship. So I'm calling you, if you're out there right now, you're a member of this church, and you say, the thing I do at Grace Fellowship, I come on Sunday and I go home. And that's all I do. It's the only contact I have. I want to challenge you to change that. I just want to challenge you to change that. To, to say, I need to be more with the people. I don't have any qualms of saying, some of us need to look at our commitments in attendance even on a Sunday morning. I know. Just gets you real heavy at application like, I'm not talking about you because you missed last Sunday. You know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just talking about in general. Like we're saying, I'm for the glory of God, but forget going to the place where the glory of God is being displayed intently on a Sunday morning. I don't really need to do that. Really? Yeah, you need to commit to being here. Not so we can count your head and write you down and say, oh, we had 10 more than last Sunday. But so that we as a community feel and sense that one another are together in this adventure. Some of you are so lonely. And I'm calling you to come from the loneliness into the community. Stop being the lone wolf. Yes, you're beat up. Yes, you need help. Yes, you sin. We all do. Get around us enough and you'll know we're all sinners. Okay, but we've, but we've been saved by grace and called to a great mission of explaining the glory of God. So commitments like that is what we're looking at. Not revolutionary things. Come to church. Give. Don't give so we can spend more money, but give so that the message may go forth. Commitments in those ways. Real relationships. Authentic living. That's the culture of evangelism. You know, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me that we run from that. And yet when we come to it, it's such a relief. Have y'all ever been in sin? And, and, and no, I know you've been in sin. <laughs> I paused intentionally, so everybody go. Have you ever been in sin and you just wish somebody would catch you? I've been there. Please, somebody, find me out. All right? 
You know why? Because God designed you to be in a community. He didn't design you to be alone. And what I want Grace Fellowship to be is a place where sinners can come and say, I've really messed it up. And we don't excuse it and say, oh, that's okay, brother, just keep doing that. But where we say, we don't gossip about it, but where we really lovingly surround that person and encourage their heart and bring them before Jesus and give them the help and accountability they need. And in that way, when you love one another, Jesus says, then they will know. You see what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about... I'm not talking about what the world or what our Christian world calls radical living. What the Christian world and myself, I've been guilty of this lie. What we think of as radical living is going to Papua New Guinea. Like Alex Sisson, who we, uh, who we uh, Skyped with. And we think, man, he's radical. He's living for... But some, the most radical thing you ever do is live for Jesus right where you're at in every area of your life. That it hit, the relationship with Christ impacts every decision, thought, and action you have every day. That's radical. You don't have to move across the globe to be radical. You can live right here your whole life, live, die in this place and be radical. And that's what we want, okay? That is compelling. Why would we live that way for the glory of God? Why would we live that way? Because Jesus is worth it. Because he has called us to it. And so... I want to close now with that call. Come join us. You're not a member of this church? I have no problem telling you we want you to be a member here. If you're a believer in Christ, we want you to join because we need you. We need you to fully engage this community. You have a sphere of influence for the glory of God that we don't have, and we want you to come. We want you to be part here of the fellowship here. We need you not only because you influence others, but because you will influence us. We need you. We want you. You're not a Christian. We want you to come to the banquet table. You are a Christian. We want to be a community together going and sharing that he is enough.